Now let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 16 and uh, verses uh, 13 and, uh, and 14. Acts 16 and verse 13, hear the word of God. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now we can see a glorious uh, providence behind Paul's visit to Philippi. It was the first time that the word of God had come to the European continent. And we find that uh, God intervened in, in Paul's life uh, to lay a constraint upon him now to leave Asia and move uh, west to Europe. He was forbidden to continue any longer in Asia. He was sent a special messenger requiring him to go to this city instead. And we find that as a consequence of this providence that God builds in this city one of the most attractive of the New Testament churches. We find also because of this providence that we encounter two or three of the most intriguing figures of the New Testament. There's a, a, a demon-possessed girl who uh, tells fortunes and is controlled by her pimps. And then there is a, a, a jailer. And then there is this uh, third person, Lydia, described for us in the text that I have just uh, read to you. And here we find this great example of the Lord Christ, the Good Shepherd, who goes to seek and, and to save. The marvelous way in which the shepherd finds people in all their particularity and all their unique personal needs and how he applies to them the benefits of what he has accomplished in his saving work. And we see in which the way in which God's grace focuses on this city, on Europe, and on Greece, and on Philippi, and how in this city he goes outside and he meets uh, this possessed girl, and he meets Lydia, and he meets the jailer. And God deals with them in very different ways. Uh, they are very different personalities. One was a brutalized military man and another was a, a gentle religious woman of culture, an entrepreneur, and another was a warped and disturbed girl. And God homes in on them and brings them to the, the same savior by the same experience of renewal and the rebirth and moves in each of them and affects then uh, the same kind of saving commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these three then, they become the founder members of the church at Philippi. And yet, respecting them and 
dealing with them in quite different ways. So that in the years to come, as at uh, fellowship meals and on certain occasions, they would bear testimony to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace. They would witness to his grandeur and they would marvel at his mercy to them. But they would each tell a different story as to how God brought them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And uh, the first thing I, I want to deal with is the condition in which Paul found this woman. And the significant thing we are told about Lydia is that the Lord opened her heart. And it's a remarkable statement because it's telling us that Lydia's heart was a closed heart. It was closed to the gospel. It was closed to the truth. It was closed to the Lord Jesus Christ. She was a perfectly respectable woman. She was by all appearances a, a highly trained and intelligent woman. And she was in her own way deeply devout and religious. She was a God-fearer in a significant sense. And yet with all her intelligence and all her respectability and all her devotion and, and all her religion, yet her heart was by nature and by constitution utterly closed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is something um, about which the Bible is quite adamant that this is how it is with all ordinary men and women. Christ is outside. He's knocking on the door. The heart is closed to him. That's how it is by constitution and by nature for all of mankind. All of us have hearts that are utterly closed to the truth of God. It may be that um, as natural men, we are capable of, of great virtue and great achievement in many areas of personal endeavor. We have people in our own families, parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts that we, we just greatly admire their through the common grace, they're capable of great domestic faithfulness and devotion. They're capable of heroic professional commitment. They're capable of making great personal sacrifices in the pursuance of a, a caring ministry for the good of their fellow men and for their communities. They, they take social responsibilities very highly. And all that lies within the province and the capability of the natural man. Uh, people can rise to heights of self-denial and self-sacrifice and high levels of professional and domestic and devotion. And yet their hearts are closed and barred and shut tight to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's possible with this woman, Lydia, that she was working on at her profession because uh, she was a widow and she had children to support or she had elderly parents to look after and uh, they needed her labors and her income. And I'm no doubt at all that um, 
she was quite heroic in her devotion and in her dedication. And all that is true. But I may go further still, and I'm sure that many uh, natural man and woman are perfectly capable of making intellectual formulations of the Christian faith. I'm sure that many an unconverted man can pursue the study of theology and go to university and learn the languages and the history and the more esoteric languages um, other than Hebrew and, and Greek and show astonishing interest and uh, reach much higher levels of academic and intellectual success than many of us could attain to in our studies. Uh, and such men can grasp then historical theology and the debates and the confessions of faith and extract from the word of God the formulae and the form of words that we articulate that are central verities of the Christian faith and also some of its great profundities and they can speak and they can write about it. The natural man is capable of these things. He can be enthralled by the uh, antinomies of uh, God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. Uh, you will remember in Paradise Lost how Milton describes the devils in one of the caverns of hell and they are discussing determinism and free will and fate and foreknowledge. Uh, uh, what a terrible picture it is. Uh, they are bound in chains waiting for the judgment of the great day and yet they are discussing the great complexities and intricacies of the revelation of God uh, with intellectual speculation and earnestness and I suppose with no inaccuracy either. It's perfectly possible for the natural man to rise to that level of insight and yet all the time her heart, his heart, his mind closed tight to the Savior, the blessed Redeemer of that one who gives us a close walk to heaven. But I can go beyond that still. It's possible that we can respond to the gospel in a perfectly emotional, a profoundly emotional way. It may be that our hearts are pricked. It may be that as that uh, uh, multitude gathered at Pentecost, uh, uh, God's word got home. It got really under their skins. It got into their consciences. It, was, it came to them in a painful and a condemning way. And yet their hearts were closed and remained closed to the gospel. It may be like Felix that we hear the word of God and it comes as uh, someone with apostolic truth as speaks to us of righteousness and judgment uh, and temperance and judgment to come. And, uh, and we tremble under the word of God and we know some sense of dread. We have a glimpse then of uh, what the logic of our defiance of God will lead us to and we see God's rectitude and the terrible certainty that we must all appear before his great white throne and we must give an account for how we've lived and we are hearing it not just in a comprehension of what is being said but with our emotions too and no matter how 
far from God we are and how debauched we may be and how hardened in our sin. Nevertheless, as Calvin says, there is none of us so hardened that periodically our consciences will drag us to the tribunal of God. You remember Hamlet in the great soliloquy there, he says, conscience doth make cowards of us all. And maybe some of us have known that, a sense of horror at the presence of God in a place and the numinousness of God. And uh, we may have the profoundest possible exposure emotionally to the grandeur of that theme and its integrity, the rectitude of the living God. Still our hearts closed to God. I will be more daring still. Maybe we have received the word with joy. We've enjoyed the preaching. We have tasted the goodness of the word. We have not only seen its precision and its depth, but we have felt something of the of the wonderful intellectual exhilaration of understanding and handling the gospel of God. But there is this terrible possibility even that its goodness has got home to us and we've enjoyed a taste of it and we've had an emotional response and we've received it with joy, but our hearts still closed to the gospel. That's how it was with this woman. A prayerful woman, a woman who liked the fellowship of other moral and religious people, in many ways so admirable, in many ways so noble, in many ways so intelligent, in many ways so religious and devoted to God. And yet with all those epithets being true, her heart was closed to God. I worked... uh, for a year while I was preaching here and there as a wages clerk in a big open office and once a year the miners of South Wales had their week's holiday and they were given a week's pay. They were all paid in money and so we had a double lot of salaries. It came to about a million pounds, a lot of money in those days. And there was a there was a walk-in safe. You see them in banks, you know, with a great wheel, and you open and pull the door open, and in you go. And all the cash boxes were there, and the million pounds for all the, the collieries of southwest Wales. And two men then would be asked to spend the night, and they would sit on chairs and play cards and talk to one another all night. And the police were told, and the, the police car came... Uh, every hour and waved at the men and all was well. The money was there, but behind great sealed door. And that's how it is, that great door, that great barrier to Jesus Christ, solid and strong, hard as iron. And there it is in, in every heart. And that's, that's how it is then. That's how it is with this, this person. And then I want you to see secondly how God moves in. And who opened her heart. And we're told it was the Lord. 
that he opened her heart. That it was then the Lord Jesus Christ. He opened her heart. And Luke tells Theophilus in the opening verse of uh, Acts that he has written the gospel, which was simply the beginning of all that Jesus began and did. And now he's telling us in these 28 chapters of all that Jesus continued to do and continues to do to this day. That this Savior is the one who's opened, opened the hearts of so many of you also. He opens hearts. He, he takes the first step. Remember how Paul writes to the Philippians and he talks about the Lord who begins, who begins a good work in us. Grace in its uh, conception and in its continuance and in its consummation. <laughs> it's all of the Lord from beginning to end. And so this, this Lord Jesus, this Lord Jesus, he opens the heart. And how tremendously important it is as we see the, the sovereignty of this uh, electing activity. And you have to remember all the time and you have to tell your people all the time that it is the sovereign the sovereignty not of fate. It is not the sovereignty of an abstraction. It is not the sovereignty of a principle. It is not the sovereignty of a tribal demon. It's not the sovereignty of some force. But it is the sovereignty of the most wonderful and beautiful and lovely person that this world has ever seen or ever will see. It is the sovereignty of the Lord. It is the sovereignty of Jehovah Jesus. In other words, I'm saying to you, I'm pleading with you that you make sure that you Christologize your whole concept of uh, God's sovereignty. When you think of election and the electing God, Jesus is the electing God. He chooses these fishermen and passes by others and he goes into an office and he touches a man there and summons that man and he's the electing Lord. And when you think of predestination, then Jesus, he is the God of predestination. You think of foreordination, it is the Lord Jesus who foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Or if you think at an even more terrible and solemn level of the reprobation of God, of the preterition of God, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And again it is, you will remember, it is the Lord Christ. And that is to me absolutely magnificent. That it is the Lamb of God who is in the midst of the throne of God who is working all things after the counsel of his own will, that he has been found worthy to open the book of the providence of God. And he's written from top to bottom. There's no place for you to add anything. It's just full of his handwriting. And there you are. And there am I. And there are Twin Lakes. And it's all there in 
the providence of the Lord Jesus Christ, that awe-inspiring theology of the sovereignty of God. Christ at the heart of election, Christ at the heart of providence, Christ at the heart of predestination and reprobation. So we have here then the sovereign initiative of the Lord. It's the sovereign initiative of the Lord Christ. You know that there is no God behind Jesus who is greater than Jesus, who has to put brakes on Jesus. There is no God behind Jesus who is tugging him back, who is restraining him, who is limiting him, who is behind him saying, son, you're being too loving. You are being too gentle. There is nothing like that. You are all aware of that. Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the alpha. He is the first. He is the furthest. He is the highest. He is the deepest you can go. And when you think of the sovereignty, then when you touch the sovereignty, you are touching the love. When you are touching the sovereignty, you are touching the Lord. You are touching the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the tender one, the the shepherd who leaves the 99 and comes to seek and find we sinners who were lost, whose heart the risen Jesus opened. You see, he's not a dead savior. He's not a, a, a trench of dust under the Syrian sky. But here he is. He's the risen Lord and he opened her heart. She could not open it. You could not open yours. You could not open your children's hearts. You know that. You cannot do the work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And he must. Thou must save and thou alone. And what urgency that brings to our proclamation, doesn't it? Um, You know the story of the uh, men illicitly gambling upon the uh, fourth uh, floor of a tenement building. And they're there and they're drinking and they're gambling together and they're intense on this game And one of them starts to smell some smoke, some burning. uh, And he says, you've got the key, haven't you? Yes, yes, you've got the key. And so they get on with the game. They're wrapped up in this game. And then the smoke seems to get stronger. And they can hear a crackle. And the temperature seems to be going up. You've got the key, haven't you? And the man says, yes, um, I thought you had the key. I don't have the key. Who has the key then? And none of them have the key and they're trapped in a room and none of them has the key to open the door. They can't get out. And now they forget about the cards and the money and their game and because they're trapped. When they thought they were in control, then it was fine with them. They could just walk out whenever they wanted to if there was a slight danger of some fire. But now the flames are burning and they're trapped and they can't get out. Now they go into the window and they're screaming for help and they're trying to break the door down. They must get out. Somebody must come and rescue them. 
And thus it is when men and women think, like boys in school would say to me, well, I want to enjoy the world first. I, I want to have fun. And then when I'm older, then I'll, I, I, I'll turn to God so that they can just decide when and where. And salvation is of the Lord. To, their hearts are closed. And when they see that, they, they start to cry, Oh Lord, open my heart. Oh Lord, you must do it. You must open my heart to thee. And you see here then the terrible reality of the divine selection, don't you? We're told in verse 13 that there were women there. That there was a group of women who share with one another and pray with one another for their concerns. And uh, Paul spoke to them all. One woman. Only one woman. Her heart was opened. God's grace coming the Holy Spirit coming and just on Lydia settles and convicts. You remember you went with the fellows to Sunday church as always and then that blessed day, that happy day came that fixed your choice on him who is now your savior and your God and you saw it. We deserve eternal death because we are sinners. But Jesus Christ, because he loved us, gave himself for us and you saw it. Into my heart, Lord, come, you cried. And you were given assurance of a saving interest in the blood that we sung about. And afterwards you talked to the boys and they said, did you see television last night? And they said, you see how... Uh, the Falcons did. See how the Red Sox did. None of them. None of them showed any interest at all. In the Lord Jesus. You were there in the pew. You heard the same message. The same influences. In the godly people around. And in the hymns that were sung. But one heart opened. Your heart opened. At that time. There's the word of God. With these great doctrines. These solemn truths, these humbling truths, man's impotence, man's helplessness. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him. It's all so very clear. Here is one heart opened by the Lord Christ. A grace that operates selectively. A love which falls with all its particularity on this one and on that one. On favored sinners. In other words, she was the reason that God sent him messenger to the Apostle Paul saying, come over, come over to Asia, come over to Macedonia and help us. She was the reason for the Macedonia cry. And because she was the reason when Paul obeyed and spoke, the Lord opened her heart and opened the heart with all the glory of his loving particularism. He selected her. And he chose her and he brought her under the sound of the gospel and he opened her heart that she received it. So I've spoken to you firstly about the state of Lydia and then I've spoken to you about the one who opened her heart. 
And now I want to say, what does that mean? What is the result of that? Well, he took away from her eyes the scales of prejudice, that spiritual blindness that had made her religious but not regenerate. He made it possible for her to be more than a decent woman and more than an intelligent woman and more than a religious and a moral woman. He made it possible for her to see what by nature it's impossible for her to see and she could never have seen. She saw, for example, the divine authority of the word of God that was coming to her. We are told when her heart was open, she heeded. She listened intently to the word of God that was coming to her. You will remember the apostle speaks to Thessalonian Christians. He says, our gospel, it came to you not in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit and with much assurance. And you know then he says what the result of the Holy Spirit coming with much assurance to the heart is that they received the word, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, uh, the word of God. It had been words before. I went to the hospital and saw the lady in the four-bed ward and spoke to her for a while, one of my members, and I went round to speak to the others, and I came to a woman, an older woman, looking disgruntled, fed up. How are you? I said, oh, she said, we've had a terrible day. My daughter was, we were going somewhere with my daughter and some fool came out and hit our car and there we are. They came and they insisted that we be checked up for concussion and here we are. Car's been ruined and our day has been ruined. So I started to talk to her with my lisping, stammering tongue, as ill-equipped as ever. And... Uh, said, you know, that things don't happen by chance and that the Lord who is in control of our lives is the one who sent his son in love to, to become our Lord and Savior. She looked back at me and she said, words, only words. Now the gospel came to her, but the gospel came in word only to her as it comes to so many of our hearers week by week, as it came to the other women that were there looking at Lydia and noticing the change in her attention and in her seriousness about what she was hearing. It came to her, the word of God. God drove that conviction into our heart. That this is it. This is the truth. I found the truth. The truth has found me. But there is something surely more than that. Um, she opened her eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's surely the last thing that the men and women around us see. Um, Who has believed our report. I... Isaiah says, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And there's the great eloquence of Isaiah and the poetry and the passion and the power and the marvelous beauty in this absolutely magnificent language. All we like sheep 
have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our sins. By his stripes we are made whole. It wasn't like that to the people. It was a root out of dry ground he was talking about. They couldn't imagine someone being so poetic about rubbish, dead wood. There was no form, there was no comeliness that they desired it. That's how it had been with Lydia as far as nature went and acted. Uh, This woman, like the other women until this time, was incapable of seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He wasn't the altogether lovely one. He wasn't the rose of Sharon. He wasn't the lily of the valley to her. She couldn't, they couldn't see his beauty. And then the Lord starts to change his heart and open the door and the healing light of Jesus Christ and the fragrant perfume of the Savior goes into that foul place and transforms it and she sees the beauty. She may have thought to herself, uh, Well, this is great oratory I'm hearing. I've never heard anything like this before. I've never seen anything like this before. And maybe we we knew something like that. Maybe when on that blessed day, at that blessed period, things were different and the message was different and the preaching was better and Christians were different. One of the great preachers of Scotland, in the last century was a man called Douglas Macmillan and you've read his book on the Lord is my shepherd and it's a wonderful evangelistic book full of happy warm illustrations of his stories as a farmer and a a highland wrestler and he became uh, converted and he uh, went to the Free Church College and he went up to um, Bon Accord in Aberdeen. And there he began to interview people as they were converted under his ministry. There was a woman and uh, she came in and she was absolutely terrified to meet six black-suited Presbyterian Scottish elders. And they asked, they prayed and asked her to give a word and, uh, of her own Christian experience. Um, well, I, um, I, um, I'm going to church and um, um, she stammered and stuttered. And after a while, the chairman of the elders said, oh, well, no, Margaret, that's... Um, work on this a little bit more. And at uh, the next communion season, you come and. Uh... So they prayed for her, and she got up to go, she said. Under her breath, she muttered, Lord, I can't speak for you, but I die for you. Come back, they said. <laughs> and they helped her and gave her 
much patience and led her to confess her sin and to show how her hopes were in Jesus. Douglas said to the men one night, look, I'm always asking them. All right, I'm not going to say a word you're going to interrogate. You're going to question them this time. So uh, Mary came in and she sat down and uh, Douglas welcomed her and prayed and then he sat tight and a minute or two went by in silence and his heart sunk. And then one of the elders said, do you like living in Aberdeen? And his heart sunk even more. But Mary rose to rescue this poor man. She said, oh, I do. This is where the Lord found me. And one day, Douglas was interviewing two teenage boys who had professed faith and wanted to come to the, to the Lord's table and become professing Christians. And so Douglas asked them this question, what change has taken place in your life to lead us to believe that you've become true Christians? And they talked to one another. No change in us. The change was in you six months ago when your preaching got interesting. <laughs> Now, Douglas' preaching, of course, was not more interesting six months ago, but what happened long ago, far away in Philippi, by a river, as Lydia listened, the Lord opened her heart, and he had opened these two boys' hearts. Her whole position was different the whole attitude and she suddenly saw the enthralling glory and beauty of the saviour and we're told she heeded she responded this is vitally important now I'm not casual I've, I've got to hear this I've got to do what he tells me to do she saw she must have him she saw that she must desire she must possess him she had to and the prejudice and the blindness and the arguments went she not only saw the truth of the propositions, but she saw the glory of the person. And she was drawn to him. She experienced what Chalmers called the expulsive power of the new affection. She loved her family. She loved Philippi. And she loved the riverside. She loved these women. She loved her business and the purple cloth and the purple dye. She loved. But now there was a supreme joy and affection. And it was in first place for me to live is to have this saviour as my saviour. A new affection had come into her life. And uh, nothing matters. You remember the great words of William Guthrie as he contemplates faith seeking Christ and he says what it means 
When you've seen it, what it means, when your eyes are opened, when your heart is opened, what it means is this. In your heart, you're saying, less would not satisfy, more is not desired. Less would not satisfy. That's true. Less than Jesus Christ cannot satisfy an immortal soul. And more, more is not desired for more than all in thee I find. And that's what happened to this woman. The Lord changed her heart. You know, theologically, we'd say she was given the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. God bearing witness to his own word as his own word. God bearing internal testimony now, not just in the book, not just on the lips of the apostle. But uh, now there's a change in her heart. Uh, Suddenly, I would say she's in love with Christ and she's got to have him. Uh, It's almost then regeneration. It's almost a totally aesthetic Experience. It's beyond an intellectual and academic. It's beyond an emotional experience. It's, it's an experience of the sheer beauty of the Lord Christ. And everything is changed. Heaven above, softer blue, earth around, deeper green. Something glows in every hue Christless eyes have, have never seen. And uh, there is an experience of loveliness. God is love. And there is the magnificence of this person. And he's never going to leave her. And he's forgiven all her sins, all her past sins, all her present sins, all her future sins, all cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. And remember no more. Here he is. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. The magnificence of Jesus Christ because her heart is is opened. So what shall I say then about this for you and me? Um, I shall say to you on behalf of all our our non-Christian friends, all those uh, weary teenagers who look back at us on Sundays and our families whose lives are in such muddles because they're saying no to Jesus Christ, that this, that this is their greatest need. Oh, they need great preaching. Yes, they need great preachers. And we can lament the way things are and the dearth and the poverty of talent in the pulpits today. Yes, we can say that. But the priority is on our hearts. Oh, that's it. That our hearts are moved that our hearts are opened. And then, you see, you can have preaching which Cooper describes as a poor, lisping, stammering tongue. Inept. He said of the Apostle Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his preach is contemptible. But it it didn't matter because when he spoke, ah, the Lord opened hearts as he spoke. No great eloquence like Peter. No oratory. No poetry like Isaiah or Jeremiah. But it didn't matter because the Lord was there. And the Lord was opening hearts as he spoke. And whatever we've got, building-wise, 
finance-wise, organization-wise, elder-wise, man-management-wise, oratory-wise, scholarship-wise, if God doesn't open hearts, we've got a handful of pebbles. And so there's a great encouragement for us to pray for them, isn't there, in this, that the Lord opens hearts. Sometimes you have the misfortune of hearing an evangelist and he'll come to the end of his sermon and he says, now God's hands are tied. That's what he'll say. God's hands are tied. He can do no more. He's just a spectator. He's just an observer. God. And then he prays to the tied up God. <laughs> that the God would that the God would work and that the God would would say if if God's hands are tied, if he is as much a spectator, why pray to him? Why pray to him? But here we're told he can open the heart. He can. Of the vilest offender, he can open the heart. Of the chief of sinners. Of the most obdurate. The early church looked at one another and they said, The last person to be converted is Saul of Tarsus. And the Lord opened his heart. He makes us willing in the day of his power. The Lord granted, granted for my my children. The Lord granted for my son, for my daughter. Lord, open their hearts. Whatever the preaching is, let the preaching be true. Let the preaching be Christ-centered. It may not be passionate and eloquent and beautiful and moving. But oh, if the heart is opened and it's a real Christ, then what a difference. The word comes in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance. Lord, open their hearts. But maybe um, some here should say, Lord, open my heart. I can speak to the blind man and I can say to the blind man, uh, what do you want? And the man can look back shocked at me and said, that I should receive my sight. Well, let's ask, let's ask the Lord. For the lame to leap for joy. And the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And the stony hearted be given hearts of flesh. And a metamorphosis of that on hundreds and thousands. Lord that I should receive my sight. Remember how David prayed. Lord create in me a clean heart. You'll pray, I'll pray such a prayer. People blame the preaching, don't they? And then they'll have some wisdom. And they'll see it wasn't the preaching. It was their heart. It was their mind. It was their blindness. Lord, open my heart. Open my heart talking to a man and, 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 and saying, but look, this is, this is what the Bible says. 
and, and reading him some verses from Ephesians 1. And, and then, well, look, here it is in Romans 9. Look, listen to this. This is what Jesus says here in John 6. And, and he says, let's close the Bible and listen to the Spirit. And your heart sinks. Because he's not listening to the Spirit. He's heard the Spirit. He's listening to his hormones. Lord, open his heart. Lord, open his heart. That he may see the loveliness of the sovereign Christ. Who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And maybe the proud adolescents intellectuals who are looking bleakly back at us on the Lord's day, very conscious of their pro prowess. They're saying, I can handle physics now, and I'm, I'm up on IT and math and uh, Chaucer and English and the philosophers. I can handle them. But then will they go on to say, but oh, here, I'm blind, I'm obdurate, I'm in darkness. I'm dead. Lord, open my heart. Oh, you've got to open it. I can't go on like this. Take away the scales. Help me to see the one who is the truth, the one who is life, the one who is Lord. I can describe the universe. I can give you statistics and laws of physics and mathematical formula, but I can't see the truth. The truth, because Christ is truth. Lord, open my eyes. And you hem them in to cry to him who can open their hearts. God's own people. It's a, a problem, isn't it? Often, you know, some of your elders, they have closed hearts. They have blind eyes. They have some prejudice. I've heard a Christian saying, even if you could show me that in the Bible, I couldn't believe it. That's a closed heart. It's, it's opened a crack. But I'm not interested in them. I'm interested in me and, and you. And maybe you've been facing the rebukes of God by relation, because of relationships. because of patterns of behavior and habits that are ingrained and you're having no victory over besetting sins. God has been given your counsel and your heart is closed. And when you begin to pray, this thing just looms up and you can't pray. Or God has been giving you, giving you inspiration and, and God would lift you up to great heights and all the time You've got divers' boots on and you're down on this ground. Hearts are closed. You know, the mere fact that you're a Christian is, is no proof or argument that you cannot also have a closed heart. Because you noticed I quoted Psalm 51 of a very, very mature, of a very, very wonderful man who fell into a very terrible sin. 
Lord, create in me a clean heart. Mm, a clean heart. He knew he needed spiritual surgery. He'd been so blind and so prejudiced. And maybe that's why we came here, to say, really, we must deal with this. Standing in grace, a minister in a church, but unacceptable patterns of behavior not dealt with. Lord, clean up my heart, Lord. Come in to every room in my heart as Lord. Open my heart. And God then has never refused to answer such a prayer. Never. And the moment of renewal and a new beginning is now. Let us pray together. Thank you, Lord, for being the God who opened the hearts of so many, many men here tonight. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that their wives' hearts have been opened and some of them can thank thee that their children's hearts and that they come from a home where you touch mum and dad and their hearts were opened, their congregations. Oh, Lord. Oh, we're so thankful. And we're coming to a king, so large petitions with us we bring. And oh, we are thankful, but oh, we're not satisfied, Lord, because there are so many on a broad road and they're going to be destroyed. And some of them are lovely and some we love so much. And they're going to be destroyed, Lord, unless what happened to Lydia happens to them. Uh, glorify your son, dear Savior, by visiting them and opening their hearts. Call them to the bar of justice tonight and call them to the cross of Christ tonight and set in their hearts a cry, a yearning, a longing, which would lead us to believe that you've begun to open their hearts. Oh, how wonderful. Be merciful, Lord, and grant us to see better days for the church of Jesus Christ and reviving mercies and uh, great awakenings. Oh, Lord, you're doing it in China and Korea and Zambia and Brazil. And we're so thankful to hear of all these showers. And we bring a defiant culture, a rotten and a sick culture. And the only answer is hearts opened by a loving Savior. Oh, please, Lord, please grant it in your tenderness and in your love. Use our words. Help us to obey when the voice says, come over, come over to Mas our Macedonia and help us, and we would go. But please then, Lord, grant us see, to see fruit for our labors and glory given to him who loved us and gave himself for us, even Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.